0: And now here's your host, CEO and founder of the best ever You Network, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino.
1: Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us here on the Best Ever You Show. can't believe it's almost 2019. Uh, We're here among friends, and I hope that you grab your coffee, grab your tea, grab your water, whatever it is, your lunch, and uh, join us for the next hour or so. Uh, We have ICI with us. We have the ICI Associate General Counsel Tammy Salmon with us, and we have ICI Director Joanne Kane with us, and ICI is the investment company institute and we're going to have a show all about investor protection. So this is at a user level type of show. So like if you're investing, if you know someone who's invest, who's investing um, for example, like mutual funds for your retirement, your child's education, or even like a rainy day, you might want to keep others from getting hand, getting their hands on your savings for sure. Sometimes the threat comes from fraudsters. (laughs) Sometimes it comes from little known rules buried within your state government's bureaucracy but because educated investors are more able to protect their assets, today you're going to learn about the potential risk to your assets being taken or stolen and the steps you can take to avoid them. So we've got two wonderful mutual fund, fund industry experts with us, and uh, welcome. Thank you for being with us.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: And I'm, I'm thrilled you're here, and I'm glad. Do you have the full hour to spend with us? Is that okay? About an hour or so? Yes, yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely, yep. <laughs> great all right um and i have i, I have both ladies on the on a speaker phone and they're going to trade off answering the different questions that we have for them if you have questions while we're live on air here because remember we are live and taped live and i don't edit this show uh, you can tweet me at best ever you or you can email me at elizabeth at best ever com, and we'd be happy to take your questions live on air so um what if if one of you could for us, just tell us what ICI is and why someone should listen to this show and what they might uh, gain from listening and giving us their hour of their time.
2: Okay. So th- this is Tammy. And the Tammy. ICI, it stands for the Investment Company Institute, as, as you already mentioned. And investment company is the formal legal name for a mutual fund. So basically it's the mutual fund um, institute. We're a trade association for the mutual fund industry. Um, Your audience is likely familiar with other trade associations such as the American Medical Association that represents doctors or the American Dental Association that represents dentists. We're a similar association except we represent mutual fund companies. And so what that means is that we represent the um, uh, interest of mutual fund companies across the board when they're dealing with uh, regulatory Um, agencies, such as the Securities Exchange Commission or the IRS or the Department of Labor, we're kind of their voice, so rather than those agencies having to talk to each of the um, hundreds of mutual fund companies separately, we're kind of their voice. We collect the information and share it with regulators, and if regulators want to meet one-on-one with mutual fund companies, then we can facilitate those interactions. So we're the the trade association representing the mutual fund industry and, and all their shareholders' interests.
1: And well, what's the best way to get a hold of of ICI? Would you like people to go to the website? Would you like people to use Twitter, Facebook? Where are you? And, well, I love YouTube also. I noticed you guys are on YouTube as well with a lot of videos. But what's where would you like people yeah, to go? Yeah, we, we try to be in as as
2: much media as possible in order to reach shareholders. But I think probably that the, the best place to start would be on ICI's website, which is www.ici.org and there you can find out all kinds of information about mutual funds and, and um, issues that mutual fund shareholders may be interested in. Right, and then I would
3: add that the YouTube channel is great as, as is Twitter and, and Facebook, um, but if you're just getting started, the website is the place to start.
1: Okay. And is that for any age groups? For example, sometimes on Best Ever You, we get teens who listen and want to invest their money. Like, uh, you know, I'll just give an example of my own son. He works at McDonald's and, and um, I have four boys ages 17 to 23. And one of them just joined their 401k at work. For example, um, is this for any age or is it for um, more middle age or older or, or uh, what's your target audience? could be everybody, It's right? really
2: for anybody that's <laughs> interested in learning more about mutual funds and mutual fund investing.
1: Okay. So it could be any age then.
2: Yep, abs- absolutely.
1: Awesome. All right. So I, I would love to learn a little bit more about you. I, I, I know you guys, but I want to make sure the audience knows you. So would you mind each taking a moment and telling us what you do at ICI and how long you've been there and all those good details?
2: So, again, this is Tammy, and I'll start. Um, I'm in the (laughs) law department at ICI. I've been here 25 years, and my role is really to work on legal issues that impact our members and to engage with regulators on regulatory concerns. So, for instance, if the SEC is thinking about adopting a rule that's going to impact mutual funds, we want to make sure that we consider all the unintended consequences of that rule and, and let the SEC know. Um, what our concerns are, so maybe they can make revisions as necessary, to so the rule might be problematic. And once um, either a law is enacted or a rule is adopted, we work with members to implement the new requirements and resolve any kind of interpretive questions that uh, our membership at large may have. So we're, we're kind of a, an intermediary, at, in, in my role at the law department, I'm an I- intermediary between lawmakers and drafters of, of rules and, and our members. And and I'm Joanne Kane, and I am
3: a director of transfer agency and operations. Um, Compared to Tammy, I'm a relative newcomer. I've been here five years, um, but I do have over 25 years of experience in the mutual fund industry, um, generally in the compliance side, so assisting the companies where I worked in complying with the rules and regulations and then supporting the customer service arm of, of those mutual funds and what I do here is similar to what Tammy does but not as a lawyer I like to I like to joke that um, I'm the one that tells them how things really work because I come from the <laughs> operation <laughs> side <laughs> and I, I have the knowledge of how the systems work and the internal processes and, and controls that are in place um, in particular on the transfer agent or as I like to refer to the transfer agent as the customer service side of the mutual fund. Um, and I think maybe to level set before we jump into the conversation, when you hear us mention transfer agent, what does that mean for your audience? Um, and as I, as I was joking, I do consider it the customer mm-hmm. service arm. But if you step back a minute and you think about how a mutual fund is organized, um, mutual funds are generally externally managed. And so what does that mean is that they don't really have employees. They have a board of directors, but there's no specific employees of a mutual fund. The board of directors hire the various entities that support the mutual fund. So, you know, your mutual fund traders and the people making the investors. But one of the most important contracts that they enter into is with the transfer agent who is the customer facing arm for the mutual fund. So they'll handle, you know, that's your call center where you can call in and get information about about your account. Is where you mail, you um, things too, whether you have a request for a purchase or redemption, it's who runs your, the website and uh, all of those sort of customer service and customer-facing things. And also, they're somewhat behind the scenes. They're not who you generally see out, you know, on an investment channel or whatnot. These are the behind-the-scenes guys taking care of the customers and protecting the customers' assets. And so that's the area we're going to focus on today when we're talking about mutual funds and protecting
1: shareholders great i can 't wait to to learn more I think uh, with with having you both on here it just presents such a great opportunity for all of our audience at best ever you to just learn more about money and investing and so forth. So I really appreciate your time and energy in uh, in helping our audience learn about this topic so you you mentioned that ICI represents the interests of mutual fund investors. what type of um, work? Do you do on behalf of those mutual fund shareholders? Do you can you talk just? I know you kind of touched on it just now, but can you can you go into more detail about that? Just a little yeah, bit more. Yeah,
2: so kind of from a, a big picture perspective, I mean, basically everything that that we do here at the ICI is um, on behalf of the mutual fund shareholders. There there are over a hundred million mutual fund shareholders today. And so as as we're looking at issues or thinking about issues, they're foremost in our mind. So for instance, I mentioned, you know, the SEC, you know, when they propose a rule, well, if the costs of that rule are going to exceed any benefits to shareholders, we want to make sure the SEC is aware of that because one of the things we're intent on is keeping mutual fund expenses down so they remain an economical investment for shareholders. Um, also, you know, we're engaged on initiatives such as reforming shareholder communications. If anybody has ever read a prospectus, you know how daunting it is. So we have been working for years on trying to reduce the Um, amount of information that shareholders are provided and provided in more friendly form than than they've had, you know, they've received it in the past. In the past, it was always, you know, you get a prospectus by mail. Well, you know, we're in favor of modernizing communication so people can get information online. So, we work on initiatives such as as that. Um, Some of the initiatives we work on at the congressional level um, involve protecting the tax advantage status of retirement accounts. You may recall or may not remember that uh, when tax reform was considered by Congress in 2017, so just last year, one of the issues on the table was to eliminate um, the tax advantages for retirement accounts. Well, that would have a significantly adverse impact on anybody saving for retirement through a 401k or an IRA. So we're up there advocating on behalf of shareholders to make sure that Congress is aware of, um, if you eliminate those kinds of tax advantages, what that would do to, to shareholders. And we were really pleased that our arguments did carry the day and, and Congress decided not to pursue that. So those are kind of the you know big picture stuff, but from a you know drilling down to the shareholder, Again, if your listeners go to our website, you'll see there's all kinds of educational information there for shareholders, so when we see something that we think shareholders need to be aware of, we try to push that information out, because from our perspective, the more knowledgeable a shareholder is, the better able they are to protect themselves, and and so we're very engaged on educational initiatives as well.
1: What types of projects are you currently working on to protect the interests of our, of the mutual fund shareholders? What what uh, types of things have you got going on at ICI? Well,
3: we've got a we've got a couple that I think we wanted to focus on today, and um, we we have three working groups that I think the audience would be most interested in. And, and when I talk about working group, just sort of to level set for you, a working group for us consists of mutual fund members. So it, it could be, it's members of anybody um, of the mutual funds that you all know, the names that you hear often, or some of the smaller guys, some of the larger guys, um, and, and the people that work there participate in the working group and collaborate together, which is one the great p- part about the operations side is there's no competitive between investments, so it's really about working together to do what's right, um, and it's amazingly collaborative. Um, And we have three working groups going right now. One is to protect shareholders from fraud. Another is to protect senior citizens from financial exploitation and abuse. And we'll talk a little bit, uh, in a little bit, what the difference between fraud is and exploitation. Um, And then lastly, to protect shareholders from being harmed by state's unclaimed property laws. And you had mentioned a little bit earlier in the intro uh, about little-known regulations that may separate shareholders from the money, and this this is a good example of that. And so we have a working group that tries
1: to prevent that. That's awesome. Can you talk about each, I don't know if this is too much, but can you go through each one of those? Do you mind taking the time to um, go through uh, the three different working groups in more detail? Uh,
2: we're, we're happy to. So let's start with the first one that Joanne mentioned, which is is fraud. Um, So, as I mentioned, you know, there's 100 million mutual fund shareholders and collectively they hold approximately $21.5 trillion in in shareholder assets. And as with Willie Sutton robbing banks, because that's where the money is, obviously mutual funds are holding a lot of money that that fraudsters would be interested in getting their hands on. So, one of the things that we're very much focused on is is making sure that they don't get their hands on um, shareholders' assets. Um, And this came into focus for us within the last year because if you recall back in the summer of 2017, Equifax, which is one of the, the three credit bureaus, experienced a significant data breach. According to the Federal Trade Commission, between May of 2017 and July of that year, the hackers were able to obtain information on 143 million Americans and this information which is very sensitive, non-public personal information included their social security numbers, their birth dates, their addresses, in some instances it included their driver's license numbers. They were also able to steal credit card numbers for over 200,000 people. So you can imagine the treasure trove of information that wound up in the hands of fraudsters that they could then use to couple it with other information to try to get access to the financial accounts that these individuals held. So what we heard from our members following this breach is they were experiencing a significant uptick in attempted frauds and people trying to impersonate uh, shareholders in order to get their um, hands on the shareholders' assets. So this information came to us. As Joanne mentioned, we have, you know, transfer agent committee where mutual funds get together to talk about what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. So it was through one of these meetings that this issue came up. And the members at that time requested that, that we put together a working group that could focus more closely on, okay, if we have fraudsters trying to get into these accounts, how are they doing it? So we could compare notes to, to make sure that our members could, you know, make sure that the fraudsters were not able to, to get into these accounts. So Joanne is the one that created this this working group and, and should tell you now about some of the, the work they've done and, and it continues to this day.
3: And I'll clarify to start with, though, fraud's always been around. Um, You know, it used to be they'd wait by your mailbox and steal a check or, you know, things like that. But as, as, you know, online came along and um, the Internet and technology becomes more sophisticated, so do the criminals. Um, And one good thing about criminals, generally they're lazy, so it helps us in that (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, if, if you have, you know, three cars and one's unlocked and two are locked, the criminal's going to go to the unlocked car and take the contents of the car, whereas, you know, they don't need to break a window or whatnot. So it's, it's similar in, in, in the financial space. Um, so it makes it a little bit easier for us. But unfortunately, technology helps them and, and, and allows them to do more while still being lazy. So um, as technology has invo- evolved and as more and more information is out in the public, Um, It's creating issues for for all of you and and for mutual funds. Um, And so we did start this this working group in February. Uh, All of our members are representatives, so all of of the mutual funds have some form of representation on this working group. Um, And the main goal of it is to share what people are seeing. Uh, The best defense is to know what's out there. So what are the scams that you're seeing? What are the mechanisms that they are using to try and gain access to mutual funds accounts Um, And often we see that it's, you know, compromised the shareholder, not at the mutual fund, but unfortunately through identity theft of of that shareholder. So they they have that shareholder's personal information. They may have access to their bank account or their email. Um, and, And sharing among ourselves what's out there is extremely helpful so that you can prepare that, oh, if I see this happen in my shop, how would I know to stop it? Um, we also are looking at various technology that's out there that can assist the mutual funds. For example, voice print has come a tremendously long way in that a call center rep, if they're using this voice print technology, can tell whether Tammy is pretending to be me. They can tell based on the background noise, is that appropriate for a person making a financial transaction? Is, you know, are they calling from a bus station? Um, is there stress in her voice? Is, there, is she nervous? Um, is she a female pretending to be a male? Um, you know, there's all kinds of characteristics so that literally the phone representative can get a red light or a green light. You know, a red light being like, oh, there's something wrong here. You, you, you might want to investigate further. Or green light, they, they've sort of passed all of these, these tests. Um, so we're looking, you know, with the members at all the different technologies that's out there, Um, We've been tracking, we have a a matrix that we track of all of the different scams or scenarios that funds have seen, again, to share because knowledge is power. Um, We've conducted surveys of practices so that we understand what controls work, what controls might need to be tweaked because, you know, they're a little bit outdated. Um, And it's just the collaboration alone is enormously helpful for our members. Um, as they work together. And it also gives our members the forum to say, call up and say, hey, we just had this happen. You all might want to watch out for this. You know, we've been able to stop this guy from coming in, but he's going to come to you next, so be prepared. Um, and, and so all of those are enormously helpful things. For, for our members and for, for the shareholders.
2: Yeah, and, and I would just add, our members are incredibly willing to share because this is an area where there is no competitive advantage to keeping the fraudsters out. If, if fraud harms one mutual fund shareholder, it's gonna harm all of our members. So the members are very interested in working together to, to cumulatively protect um, mutual fund shareholders. The other thing is, the information that we're gathering, it's for our members' eyes only. The last thing we would want is for the fraudsters to know the sophisticated steps that we're taking to, to keep them away from our shareholders' accounts. So we're developing this, this matrix, but it's just for our members' information so they can use it to hurt their defenses, but it, it, it would in no way ever wind up in the public domain.
1: Got it. So we actually got a question um, while you were talking, and. Uh, Someone asks, am I safe sitting down at my own computer, you know, like hypothetically, am I safe sitting down at my own computer and logging into my own accounts and so forth? Is that secure? Uh, I would say
3: yes. If you're on your home network and you're using an encrypted Wi-Fi, then you are safe. I would never, and this is one of our tips I think that we were going to share later, is never log in from Starbucks or some other public Wi-Fi and access your financial accounts um, because you never know who's out there snooping to steal your information on that public Wi-Fi. So at
2: home, as long as you have an encrypted password-protected Wi-Fi, yes. And then okay. the other point that I would add, you know, we've been talking about the transfer agent committee. ICI also has a technology committee and we have a chief information security officer committee. And those committees are comprised of the employees in our um, in mutual fund companies that are dedicated to protecting shareholders from cybersecurity fraud and all. So the mutual fund companies on their end are taking great steps to, to make sure that, their um, systems are up to snuff and that they're not going to be compromised. So yes, you would be safe logging on from your home computer, but as Joanne said, do not log on from a public domain. Right, I know so Starbucks is very convenient, but
1: I,
3: I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use anything on a public domain that you are entering a password. So whether it's social media um, or your financial accounts, because keep in mind some of the information on social, social media ties to a lot of people's passwords. So I wouldn't log into that on a public domain either.
1: Okay, we've got one more question. Um, Brad from Boston, thank you, Brad, for your compliment about our show, and uh, he's he's thankful that we're all here today talking about this. Um, he wants he would like you to talk more about c- the word cybersecurity.
2: Uh, so so cybersecurity is is really focused on protecting um, consumers in an electronic environment. So, you know, if you're talking about accessing an account, making sure that they, you know, obviously most funds you know, now have you know, passwords and they're, they're moving to two or three factor authentication to make sure that when you log in and say it's you, that in fact it's, it's you. And so what they're doing is, is trying to take steps as necessary to make sure that they're able to authenticate whoever that shareholder is. So for example, and, and again, all this is behind the scenes and, and you would not see it. If you're logging in, it'll, you're an American resident and you're logging or somebody's logging into your an account from um, an ISP address that's nowhere in the United States, that's gonna raise a red flag. And as you're coming in, the, the financial institution, the mutual fund is going to know, wait a minute, that's not their home computer. And you may have noticed sometimes when you attempt to log into your account from a computer that you don't use all the time, you'll get a pop-up that says, we don't recognize this device, we wanna ask you some additional security questions. That's because the financial institution is monitoring where that electronic communication is coming from. So when we talk about cyber, those are the kinds of steps that our members are taking to make sure that they're able to authenticate the shareholders that are coming in to ensure that if you say you're John Doe, you are in fact John Doe. Right. And then on your, the, the flip side,
3: at home, you would wanna make sure you have a good virus protection on your home computer to prevent any from, from hacking into your system. So you know, it sort of goes both ways. Well the mutual funds are doing the best they can, you also need to do the best you can to protect your home information.
2: Yes, Just always make sure your antivirus software is yep. up to date on, on our home computer.
1: Because, Good advice you
2: know, and fraud, fraudsters know when there's a gap and they're going to try to exploit that gap
1: what um, what motivated you guys to to pick up on all of this and and work on on these issues before we move into senior investors and the fraud that uh, surrounds that whole group of investors what what really was there was there a moment or
3: uh, well, it's, I mean, I, I was responsible in, in my old role before coming to ICI um, for fraud prevention at the mutual fund that I worked at. So I have a, an extensive background in it. but then hearing from our members following the Equifax breach that that Tammy mentioned, um, and you, you see the news reports. it's not just Equifax. I mean Marriott unfortunately, just had or Starwood. <laughs> Owned by Mary, I just had a
2: breach. And, and the target breach. And the and target,
3: and, you know, my own information is out there. Um, but it's it's just such a vital thing these days to protect um, your own personal information. And, and as, you know, representing the mutual funds, it's vitally important that they protect their shareholders' information as well.
2: Well, and again, also, you know, if, if a shareholder is burned by fraud they're not going to invest you know it's not just that that mutual fund company they're going to stop investing in they're going to be concerned about having any financial accounts that are going to be subject to you know theft or or being hacked and so you know we don't want investors to take their money and start putting it under their mattresses i mean there is value in investing for the the future through mutual funds and, and we want to make sure that investors have confidence Regardless of which mutual fund company they choose, we want to make sure they have confidence that their money is going to be secure. And, and so that very much motivates the, the work that we do in this space.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about senior investors um, and and how we can protect uh, senior investors in, in this space. Because um, I, I – and would you say this is a – as you're talking, would you say this is a – bigger issue than the other ones or about the same or less, you know, um, give us some perspective on how big of an issue it is for senior investors to be protected.
3: So I'll start it. And I know Tammy will talk a little bit more about this. Um, I mean, if you think of the size of the aging population in in the United States, it's clearly a large issue, um, especially as the baby baby boomers age. Um, And back to Tammy's point of the fraudsters go where the money is the majority of the wealth is with the older population. So seniors are um, unfortunately highly targeted, but at the same time we have stats here from our Fraud Prevention Working Group that show um, fraud occurs no matter the age. Um, And I would say the stats that we have, it's almost equal between those 65 and older and those say in the age of 40 to 65. Um, Again, it's more where the wealth is and it's also who's more online and who's, you know, there's different patterns to why an elder would be a targeted versus, you know, someone middle-aged. But it, I'd say it's it's equal, but there's a lot of money there.
2: Yeah, and I think that there's more vulnerability uh, with the, the senior investors, which is why we, we have focused on, on them as a specific element of the mutual fund shareholder population. Um So let me just kind of explain in our minds what's the difference between the fraud that that we were just talking about and what we're doing with respect to seniors. With respect to seniors, we're trying to protect them from financial exploitation and abuse. And the way I kind of distinguish fraud from this financial exploitation is how the bad actor attempts to steal the shareholders' assets. With fraud, as we just talked about, you'll have, you know, uh, third parties or hackers trying to get access to the the shareholders' accounts or assets by, you know, claiming to to be the shareholder when they're not and affecting bogus transactions that are not coming from the shareholder. With exploitation, it's a different situation. It's where the, the senior citizen who is the account holder is affecting the transaction but they're doing so because they're being manipulated by somebody else, which could be a relative, it could be a caretaker, it could be somebody that the senior investor has trust in. And then all of a sudden they see the senior investor has significant assets and they're whispering in the ear saying, you know, call the mutual fund company and, and withdraw this money because I need this. Or, you know, they, they fall prey to some of these schemes, um, you know, these lonely widower schemes or, or whatever. Um, and so they're you know, calling the mutual fund company to you know, withdraw money on a regular basis to send it to somebody they've never met but you know, who's now their you know, best friend or, or new life mate or, or whatever. Um, according to you know, some statistics, um, financial exploitation is the most common form of elder abuse and it is considered to be abuse. So elder abuse goes beyond just any kind of physical abuse and, and includes financial abuse. Um, according to one study that we've seen one out of every five citizens over the age of 65 has been victimized by fraud which is is a pretty you know significant amount of, of people being victimized and and what really adds insults to injury is the fact that when a senior loses money to to exploitation they don't have a lifetime you know that, that they can you know um, reestablish all those assets once they're gone they're gone and they're probably never going to be able to, to replenish them. But also, you know, with seniors, what happens is when they're defrauded through exploitation, they lose their dignity and they're disinclined to report that they've been taken because they're ashamed. They think they should have known better. They think that if they report it, people are going to think that they're no longer competent to handle their own affairs. So it, it really becomes far more tragic than, than just the, the loss of, of dollars. So I'll I'll sort of step into why that that occurs. I mean, if you think about
3: an elderly person, they they tend to be a little bit isolated, a little bit lonely because, you know, maybe their spouse has passed away or they're not living close to their family. they have the same patterns. They, they go to the bank at the same time every week. They, you know, go to lunch at the same restaurant. So there's, there's, there's patterns in, their, in their, just their normal behavior that lends them to be more vulnerable, and, and the fraudsters know this. And like Tammy said, it's often family members or caretakers um, that, that take advantage of them.
2: So you, you know what, what we're doing in this space is is different from from what we're doing with respect to fraud because again, this is a situation where it is the shareholder contacting the mutual fund company, but they're doing it because they're they're being manipulated so our members um, had asked us if, if we could come up with, with any tools to, to help them protect the shareholders. And about the time that we started to, to have these conversations, we noticed that some states had started to focus on protecting senior investors. And, and one of the things the states were starting to do was to provide um, broker-dealers and investment advisors, which are financial professionals that you know shareholders obviously deal with, to provide them the ability to delay Um, paying out redemption proceeds from a transaction when they suspect fraud or abuse or or exploitation of a senior citizen. So if the senior citizen calls the broker-dealer and they want to affect a transaction, and the broker-dealer is thinking, this just doesn't sound right to me, the states were passing laws that gave broker-dealers and investment advisors a 15-day window Investigate whether or not this was a legitimate transaction, or is it somebody that's trying to manipulate the the senior citizen? And in order to take advantage of of these laws, there's all kinds of um, protections uh, that are built into them. So, for example, uh, if a broker dealer decides that they're going to investigate it and not pay out the the proceeds immediately, they have to make sure that they notify everybody who's named on the account that they're investigating this to give them a heads up that, you know, this is going on. They have to have compliance policies and and procedures in place to make sure that, you know, they're, they're doing it in the customer's best interest. They have to have a reasonable suspicion that exploitation is going on. They have to immediately start investigating to see is it a case of exploitation? A lot of times they'll do that through a state agency that protects senior citizens to make sure that somebody can be knocking on the door right away to verify what, what's going on. So we saw the, the states starting to enact these laws, but they were limited in scope to only those states that had enacted them. So one of the things that we had thought was the ability to extend these laws to um, apply throughout the, the United States. And about that time, the SEC um, had adopted a rule that broker-dealers could use to protect their customers to the same extent that some of these state laws were enabling broker-dealers to protect shareholders. So when the SEC adopted this rule, um, we noticed that we, we were very supportive of it for one thing, but number two, it only applied to broker-dealers and investment advisors. So if you were a mutual fund shareholder, senior citizen, and you held your account directly with a mutual fund and you hadn't open the account through a broker dealer or investment advisor, these protections would not apply to you. So back in 2016, we went to the SEC and said, we don't think that um, senior citizens that open their accounts directly with mutual fund companies should have any less protection. So we would like to work with you on extending this rule so that mutual funds can take advantage of it to protect their shareholders when they hold the account directly. and. The concern that the SEC had is the fact that under federal law, if you have a mutual fund account and you want to redeem your shares, by law, that mutual fund company has to send you a check within seven days. So now we're going to the SEC saying, well, we know the law says seven days, but if there's suspected exploitation, we don't want to send that check within seven days. We want to have a 15-day window to investigate before we send that check. So, it took two years working with the, the SEC to convince them of the, the merits of this, but they agreed with us. So, as of the spring of this year, mutual funds now have legal authority to delay paying out redemption proceeds from a mutual fund account if they suspect financial exploitation or abuse of a senior citizen. and. Um, In order to do so, though, a mutual fund has to jump through all the 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 same hurdles that a broker-dealer with. So we would have to send written notice to all owners of the account, letting them know that we're delaying paying out the proceeds because we suspect exploitation. We have to conduct an investigation we have to go through all the steps that a broker dealer with to make sure that we're putting the shareholders interest ahead of the mutual fund and the uh, uh, m- mutual funds interest when we are delaying paying out the proceeds and we realize that if it turns out to be a legitimate transaction we may have deprived the shareholder of their assets for a limited period of time but we think we would rather err on protecting senior citizens from exploitation than just letting that money go out the door because once it's gone, it's gone and you're never going to give, get it back in the account. So that's mm-hmm. what we were doing to, to get the regulatory authority to do that, but then once we had the authority, then it was incumbent on us to work with our members in order for them to take advantage of the uh, relief that we just got. And so that's where Joanne's Transfer Agents Committee stepped into the, the fray to, to work on these issues. Right, and we've we've
3: been working through them to assist the transfer agents in, you know, as Tammy said, going through the hurdles to to be able to use this relief. Um, and I think there's 12 conditions that the mutual funds have to meet. So we've literally been going one by one uh, with the transfer agents so they would understand how they could comply with them and what they need to do. Um, and then the last piece that we're working on is identifying situations where this relief would be beneficial. So what are the red flags? That as as a transfer agent, you would look for to identify potential exploitation and and be able to say, oh hey, hold up, we might want to hold this redemption for 15 days while we while we make sure that the 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 shareholders not being exploited and the redemption request is legitimate. Um, and in this is a case that that I would say the transfer agents are extremely supportive and want to do the right thing to protect um, their elderly shareholders.
2: And, you know, one of the things that, that our members are doing is, as part of this working group to implement this is to compare notes on what kinds of exploitation that they've seen. And so, for example, you know, if, if you're talking to the, the shareholder and every time the mutual fund asks the shareholder a question, you hear them asking somebody else the question, that person giving them the answer and then the shareholder feeding it back to the mutual fund company, that would be an example of... A, a red flag. So that that's the kind of thing that that we're talking about, and the kind of information that our members are sharing. So everybody's kind of wise to, to how things are being exploited. And
3: unfortunately, it, it happens. And the other one that we see commonly with the age of the internet is is the romance scams. Yeah. Um And it's you know uh, the best sure. example I have is is there was a shareholder who met a significant other who lived overseas and who was building a pipeline. And so they wanted to redeem money to fund this supposed significant other's pipeline of, that they had never met. Um, and so it's, you know, how do you work with the appropriate people to get to that shareholder so they understand that maybe this isn't the best decision w- with their money? And so it's, it's heartbreaking and challenging at the same time.
1: Sure. Do you? uh, We actually have a question from Michael in New York. Michael wants to know if you kind of like what you just said. You know, the different scenarios and so forth. Are you keeping analytics of any kind on the actual use of what just got implemented? Not maybe not. And is it going to be provided to back to the public or anything like that? For example, you put that rule, um, you know, those tools in place. Do you keep track of how they're used, like or when they're used?
3: Um, the, the mutual fund themselves, the transfer agent actually has to document when it's used okay. um, in their processes and procedures. And then the SEC, when they're in examining, which they do examine transfer agents on a routine basis, that would be part of their exam to say, oh, hey, are you relying on this relief? If so, can you show us how you when and how you did it? Um, and we will get feedback from our members, but it wouldn't be something that would make it to the general public. Um, but we do monitor because we want to make sure that these things are helpful, that they're you know they're useful and they're help helpful to both shareholders and to the transfer agent.
2: And you know th- this is we're very early on in the implementation process. We just got this relief back in May. And so we're still working with our members on implementation issues. So it's very early in terms of how our members are going to be reacting to this. And and I don't think we'll be collecting statistics, but I think it's gonna be like our fraud matrix where we'll talk about the kinds of exploitation um, that our members are experiencing and and how they have been able to investigate that and and protect the shareholder. But but likely those will just be discussions within our membership and, and not see the light of day outside of our membership.
1: Okay. Now I have a question also. Um, So this might broaden this out a little bit beyond mutual funds, this question, but um, do you do any type of training geared specifically to seniors or um, children, grandchildren, so forth, you know, family as people are aging to teach people to modify their behavior to fit maybe some of the scams that are going on in 2018, 19, 20, and beyond? For example, like don't answer the door, don't pick up the phone, don't click on that, you know, stuff like that. Are you seeing a need for us, maybe even no matter what age, to modify our own behavior to be more aware? I would say, yes, everyone needs
3: to modify their behavior to be more aware. And I think all ages, right? I mean, I think the younger generation has a different view of the Internet than maybe a different, you know, older generations. Um we have been working with our transportation, we've done a couple of presentations on the red flags for senior abuse and exploitation. Um, some mutual funds have uh, dedicated fraud prevention and elder exploitation sections on their website on things to watch out for and scams. Um, and you know, we've been promoting that. One of the things we are working on and it's not available yet is we will have a fraud prevention section on our website um, next year with some of these things, but there are a number of resources out there, whether it's through AARP or the Federal Trade Commission that lists, um, Federal Trade Commission actually has a list of the ongoing scams that are out there, and as does FINRA, which is the regulatory um, body overseeing broker-dealers, has a nice online resource center um, for how investors can avoid fraud, and, and I think we're going to provide these to you to share with your, your audience. Um, on your, your, your um, Facebook and, and blogs.
2: Yeah, so we're, hmm. we're not doing any educational outreach in, in those areas because, you know, I, I think there's enough information out there currently between what Joanne just talked about, the, the State Securities Commissioners also have their own information. So I think there's already a lot of information out there for anyone who wants to know how to protect themselves to, you know, learn steps to take, but, but we have not done any public outreach on, in, in that area.
1: Okay. Um, and does that, when you say you, you haven't done, does that mean you won't, or are you're not planning on it, or you just haven't done it yet?
2: Uh, my guess is, as we start to build out that the fraud section of our website, we'll probably add information yep. to, to that. And typically, when we put stuff like that on, on our website, it's, it's to educate the yep. public. So um, yeah. it would be an educational piece for the, the public to, to access and take advantage of.
1: Awesome. All right. Um, I'm going to just take a really quick break for just a second let us all catch our breath a little bit and I just want to say thank you to Stephanie at ICI for organizing this (laughs) she does such a great job um, in helping us organize these shows and producing the information and so forth so I just wanted to give a giant shout out to Stephanie and say thank you thank you thank you it's just always such a pleasure working with you and everyone at ICI and uh, appreciate you a lot gratitude 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 to Stephanie so um, all right and so our third um, topic of um, some of the w- things that ICI is working on um, is, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, and I forgot to ask Stephanie, but it, it's, it's achievement. Am I saying that right? Because that's not a you, real common word right. my vocabulary. A cheap- <laughs> yep. So I think I'm going to have a learning moment here as well and, uh, and our audience um, to learn what that is exactly and um, make sure we pronounce it right. So it is a achievement,
2: and I am so happy to have the opportunity to, to educate both you and, and your listeners about this because it, it's an issue that I'm, I'm really passionate about because I'm appalled at, at what the states are doing. Um, so a achievement uh, refers to state laws, and every state has a law. And it enables the state to take custody of property that the state has deemed to be abandoned by the owner of the the property. So again, we're talking in the mutual fund context. So if the state has deemed a mutual fund shareholder to have abandoned their mutual fund account, then what happens is after some period of time, the, the mutual fund company is required to turn that account over to the state. The thinking being that, well, if the mutual fund has lost contact with this shareholder, the state has superior resources through their their tax records or property records, et cetera. They can get a good address on this shareholder. They can find the shareholder and they can reunite the shareholder with their money and, and everything will be great. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. Um, these laws, when they were originally enacted, were very well-intentioned and it, and it really was motivated by an interest in reuniting Um, owners of property with their property. But what we have seen over the last 10 years is states taking advantage of these laws to seize money from account owners in order to shore up state budgets. And account owners have no idea this is going on until it's too late. And when the account is cheats to the state, which means it gets turned over to the state as abandoned property, with a mutual fund account, what they do after a certain period of time is they liquidate that account. So if the shareholder ever discovers their account has been turned over to the state and they go to claim it, what they get is the value of that account as of the date it was liquidated. So if, if your account was turned over 5, 10, 15 years ago and you're showing up thinking, oh, man, this is going to be a lot of money because look what the markets have done, look at my reinvested dividends, you will be shocked to find, oh, by the way, the state liquidated the, that account years ago, so you did not get the advantage of, of any of the, the growth or reinvested dividends or you know, the, the, the benefits of, of the market with respect to, to that account. And, and let me talk about how, how states have done this. So back in the good old days when states were intent on reuniting shareholders with their money, for mutual fund accounts, they used to say, um, a mutual fund has to deem the account abandoned if, The mutual fund has been sending mail to that account and that mail has come back to the mutual fund company as undeliverable. When that happens, the mutual fund by law has to find a good address on that shareholder. And if they can't find a good address on that shareholder, then they start a clock ticking. And it used to be if that clock ticked for seven years and the mutual fund company had not found that shareholder then the mutual fund company had to deem the account abandoned and it was turned over to the state, again with the idea that the state would try to find the shareholder. After the financial crisis, when states were anxious to get their hands on more money, they changed the laws and they didn't bother to tell anybody owning these accounts that they changed the laws. And they changed them in two very significant ways. The first is with respect to using return mail as the, the trigger for deeming an account abandoned they decided, nope, we're not gonna use return mail, we're gonna use date of last contact, which means that if the shareholder has not affirmatively reached out and contacted that mutual fund company, you have to, to track the period of time that that shareholder has had no contact with the mutual fund. So if your last contact was five years ago, then that account may be deemed abandoned because, not because you're not getting your mail, And the mutual fund knows you're getting your mail because they're sending you quarterly statements and and annual reports. So you're still getting your mail. But the state said, but if that shareholder has not contacted that mutual fund company, we think they've abandoned that account. So that was one of the changes that they made Uh is to go from this return mail standard to say, well, yeah, the owner can be getting mail. But if they haven't contacted the financial institution, then obviously they've abandoned the account. The other thing they did is, as I mentioned, that the clock would start ticking and there was a seven-year dormancy period. We saw the states go from seven years to five years to three years. Now, what that means today is if you have an account at a financial institution, including a mutual fund, and you have not contacted that institution once every three years, a state could say that you have abandoned that account and require the mutual fund company to turn it over to the state as abandoned property. Um, This is obviously, oh yeah, oh yeah. And then when the
1: state gets it,
2: they can can liquidate it. And what adds harm to injury, and and this is something that, that I wanna emphasize, don't presume that just because you have money going into that account every month or money coming out of that account every month, that you're protected. Because the states say, no, that was contact when you set up that feature on your account. But each month or each quarter that that remains in place, we don't consider that to be contact. So you could be somebody that has set up, you know, payroll deduction or whatever and have money going into an account every month. But if you have not affirmatively contacted your mutual fund company by calling them, by logging on to a password-protected account, by emailing them, A state could say that you have abandoned that account, and they can seize it. And and this, um, in Texas last year, as as I mentioned, you know, we we work on state legislation and all, and there was a bill introduced in Texas last year where there was a man that, he was, you know, a, a working guy, and he had money going from payroll deduction into a mutual fund account every month, and that account was deemed abandoned, and it was, turned over to the state as abandoned property. And he was absolutely outraged. So he had gone to his legislator in, in Texas to, to try to get um, you know some relief to, to make sure that that could not happen to, to others, that the law did not pass. But these are real life examples. There was another um, instance where uh, North Carolina was going to revise their law. And again, they were not successful, but there was a gentleman who had an account at, a, an investment account at a bank It was a local bank in a small town in North Carolina, and he was going into that bank every week just because that was part of his routine. He knew the tellers would go in, chit chat with them and all. His account was turned over to the state as abandoned property because the bank was not recording every time he walked into that bank to be contacted. So he was deemed to have abandoned his account. And in that instance, under North Carolina law, once the account is turned over to the state, any monies that are deposited into the account after it's escheated belong to the state, not to the owner. So that gentleman was able to get his account back, but in the meantime, he had been paid a $10,000 capital dividend on the account. He could not get that money back. Under state law, that dividend belonged to the state of North Carolina. And when I said states are doing this to get revenue, it's, it's not an understatement. Today, California is sitting on $7 billion in its cheated assets. They expect they'll return less than $1 billion to shareholders because, again, they're not looking for shareholders. They take in the money. If a shareholder happens to show up and, and claim it, yeah, they'll pay it out, you know, as of the value they liquidated it, but they're not looking for, for the people that have lost their, their accounts to the state. Nationwide, there's over $42 billion dollars sitting in state coffers from his cheated property. In California, it's the fifth largest source of revenue for the state. The four larger sources are all statewide taxes. In Delaware, it's the second largest source of revenue for the state of Delaware. So it's a huge, huge amount of money that's flowing to the states and shareholders have no idea this is going on. And and that's why I'm so passionate about this and why I am so appalled at what the states are doing by seizing these, these assets for their own coffers and not letting shareholders know what they're doing. So when we discovered this is going on, we wanted to do whatever we could to protect shareholders. And we do have a resource center on our website and I'll be happy to provide you the, the link to, to get the information. It talks in very plain English about what this is, what you can do to, to protect yourself, frequently asked questions about what's going on, I would encourage everybody to learn about yeah. this issue and protect your account by contacting your financial institution once a year to make sure that your account is not going to be deemed abandoned. And as I mentioned, it's, it's, it's really that the state laws require you to contact you know the institution once every three years. But nobody's going to remember, wait, did I do it last year? I need to do it <laughs> yeah. year. So we encourage, find a, a time, whether it's a birthday, a tax day, whatever. Find a, the same day each year and just use that as your opportunity to contact each of your financial institutions to say, I don't need to make any changes to my account, but I want you to know that I'm, I'm still here and I'm still interested in my account. So I. I wanted to turn it over to Joanne so she can talk about some of the things our members were doing behind the scenes to protect investors when we saw this going on. Right. Right. So,
3: yeah, I share Tammy's passion uh, on this as well. I mean, it's just outrageous. Um, I do too. you're know, you right. We're glad to have you on board. It, <laughs> yeah, I'm on I mean, board. These funds are a long-term investment. They're not intended for you to have to call every year. Um especially if you're saving for your child's education or for retirement, I mean you're not going to be redeeming or transacting in that account every year. Um, so some of the things that our, our members are doing, um, they do send letters to so they try to track. Um, one of the things we had to do was build tracking mechanisms for when did you call? Did you log on to the internet? Um, most of our funds don't have uh, walk-in centers, but how do we track when you make contact? So we, we worked with all of our members to build that tracking mechanism. But you all, we also send letters to shareholders that have not had contact for a certain period of time, encouraging them to contact the funds. So if you or your listeners receive one of those letters, please open it and please call your mutual fund to say, I'm here, don't cheat my assets. Um, when we first sent the letters out for the first time, um, Shareholders actually complained, which surprised us. Um, the intent is not to scare
2: you. The intent is to keep you together with your assets. So that is. Well, and, and the other reaction that shareholders had was this is a fraudster trying to, to get me to contact them yeah. to give them my account information so they could steal my, my assets. Yeah. So one of the things that we said to investors is if you don't trust the letter, look at your last statement and contact your your uh, mutual fund company based on the contact information in your last statement. So, you know, you're getting through right. to the right people. Right. Either way, call your mutual fund. Um, And and they do, I mean, there's a
3: tremendous effort on the transfer agent side to to prevent assets from being exceeded. Um, There's database searches to try because often people will move and forget to provide their new address. So, you you know, we try to to search that way to locate you and then reach out to you, um, these letters to establish contact. Uh, tracking all the times you touch base with the, the, the mutual fund to to avoid it, because um, we we really don't want to do this. So <laughs> there's a lot of yeah. effort on the back
1: end. What about beneficiaries? What do they is there an effort to kind of go down the down the list of who might inherit that money before it goes over or whatever the word is? I don't know if inherit was the right word, but before it would go to the state. Um,
3: well. So keep in mind, if it's a general mutual fund account in your single name or a joint tenant account, there's often not a beneficiary listed. Retirement plans, yes. If there's beneficiaries, um, the the mutual funds will try to go there if they know the owner is deceased. Um, Now, Texas does have a um, trusted contact rule which would allow us in that state, if you reside in the state of Texas to contact that person to say, oh, hey, I'm looking for Tammy. Can you can you have her, her, her you know, contact us? That trusted contact can't transact on the account, but they can help us get connected to the person if they're lost. Well, and, and the mutual
2: mm-hmm. fund is, is not going to treat the owner as deceased, unless they have been provided proof that the owner is in fact deceased. Because again, that, that's another scam, is to say so-and-so sure. has died, you know, on the beneficiary. So before a mutual fund would treat an account owner as deceased, they want to see a copy of the death certificate. And it's only at that point that they would then look, okay, if this person is, is deceased, then, then who is authorized to you know, have access to this account? And if they can't find the beneficiaries, but typically it's a beneficiary or an account rep- or a, a state representative that would be right. providing the death certificate. But if they can't uh, find the beneficiary, then the clock would start ticking and, and then the account could be turned over to, to the state because the beneficiary was not aware that to, to
1: claim it. So uh, why are retirement accounts of particular concern? Why why those retirement accounts? Is there something different about them?
3: Um, Well, they're they're different in that the time horizon is obviously obviously much longer if you're saving for retirement. Um, There's also generally a period of time between your retirement and when the majority of shareholders begin to access that retirement account to take assets. So there's a period of time where there truly may be no activity. Um, and so that's, that's concerning to us um, because the states don't really understand that. Now, mm-hmm. the good news is generally most states don't require IRA or retirement accounts to be as cheated until the owner 70 and a half. Um, and there, there's a magic date with 70 and a half. That's when um, retirement account owners or IRA owners are required to start taking the minimum amount of distribution from that account. Um, And so if they don't see that happening, the states want to get their hands on that. Um, What's happened recently is the IRS uh, earlier this year issued guidance that said to mutual fund holders and other holders of financial accounts that, oh, if you're going to escheat a retirement account, not only are you going to escheat it to the state, but we'd like our share too. So please withhold 20% in taxes and give that to us and, oh, generate a tax form for the shareholder as a taxable event and send it to the shareholder that you've lost contact with. There's no sarcasm intended here at all. (laughs) Um, And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so taking something that's already harmful to the shareholder and making it triple, you know, in harm in that there's now taxes withheld and a tax form generated that the shareholder may or may not receive, um, that, guidance was supposed to take effect January 1st of 2019 so within a few weeks. Um, ICI along with some other trade associations um, worked together to get an extension to that so we have a year extension but in the meantime we also don't think that the IRS has the right to dictate this Um, for a number of reasons. We think that they don't have the legal authority to override the SEC rules and require a forced redemption of shareholder assets for the purposes of withholding or to turn it over to the state. So Tammy and I have a lot of work ahead of us with the other trade associations to try and stop this, but that is one of the reasons why um, we're so concerned about retirement plans.
2: Yeah, so imagine if you're the owner of one of these retirement accounts and you find out not only that it's as cheated to the state, and they've liquidated it, but oh, by the way, the IRS has already taken a tax penalty off the top of it because they're considering this as you taking 100% distribution of your retirement account, even though you had no idea that somebody behind your back was transferring this account to the state because state law required it. And you didn't receive the cash. And you didn't receive the cash. So it's incredibly problematic for retirement accounts. And it's just another, you know, exacerbation of what's going on in the achievement space
1: yeah well, I think it's just so important to even know that. I mean I bet I bet people will listen to this show and have and that'll be the first time they hear of this. Um, and so I think it's really important to get the message out on that. So if there's anything I can do or best the best ever you network can do to pass this you know not only just the whole show but that specific information out, I think that would really benefit a lot of people, especially considering what you said about that being such a revenue stream for states.
2: Yeah and we're we're happy to do that. There's one other piece I, I want to add to this discussion and that is um, if you have already uh, had lost an account to a state if you've contacted a financial institution and and you know to, to inquire about an account and they say oh we don't we don't have that account anymore um, it's likely because it has it's cheated. I, I was working on on some literature on on this issue and my secretary who is from Atlanta she was reading it, you know, helping with me with it, and she says, oh, my God, you know, when we were growing up, my dad established credit union accounts for me and my three sisters, and several years ago, I went to the credit union to, to you know, get my account, and they said they no longer had it, and in her mind, that was kind of the end of it, and I said, oh, my gosh, no, you, you know, you've got to contact <coughs> the state of Georgia and, and find your account, so there is a website that I'd like to give you right now, but we'll also include it in written material we'll, we'll provide to you after the podcast, it's w www.unclaimed, one word, .org. When you go to this website, you'll see a map of the United States. Um, if you click on any state, it will take you to that state's unclaimed property role, and you can plug in your name and see if they're holding any accounts for you. Um, a lot of times, like when, you know, you're in college, you, you know, live at a wherever, and at the end of the semester, you, uh, you know, Move home or whatever, and you had a utility account, and the utility company has sent a check to the address that you had been living at, and you're no longer there. There was no forwarding address, so something happens to that check, and what happens is checks like that get us cheated to the, the state as well. Any un- unclaimed asset gets us cheated to the state. So if you go to this website, I recommend that you click on every state in which you've ever lived, and also click on. I'm going to give you four states click on Delaware, Maryland, Massachusetts, and New York, even if you've never set foot in any of those states. And the reason that I say that is the way these unclaimed property laws work is if the financial institution does not have an address for the owner of the account, then that property does not ascheat to where the owner, you know, may live. It ascheats to where that financial institution is organized. And most financial institutions are organized in one of these four states. So for instance, Elizabeth, you talked about beneficiaries. So let's say the mutual fund had the name of a beneficiary, but they didn't know where that beneficiary lived. That account would escheat to wherever that mutual fund company was domiciled, and it's likely either Delaware, Maryland, Massachusetts, or New York. So I would recommend that you go to this website, check to see if you have property, I do a lot of public speaking on this just because I'm passionate about it and there's never been a time that somebody hasn't come up to me and said, oh my gosh, I did what you said and I found some money that I had no idea was sitting there. Check for your your name, your parent's name, your kid's name, anybody that you care about, run their name through the rolls and and claim whatever assets the states have already taken.
1: Brilliant advice. Thank you for that and um, I'll make sure and pass that along specifically to my family, my friends and the best ever you network for sure. <laughs> um we're gonna, we're going to run out of time here. I don't want to keep you guys too much longer. Um but gosh, brilliant and I I just so appreciate uh you guys being here for over an hour now talking about all all these issues about investor protection. Um I wanted to if we can sum up, I, do you guys have anything um Any other advice for our listeners, anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to talk about?
3: Oh, sure. We have a couple of of, of key points. Um, I can't stress enough to monitor your accounts, whether you check online on your accounts. Open your statements when they come. Don't put them in the pile to check later. I know we all do it, but open your account statements so that you can check to make sure that there's no um, inappropriate activity or activity you weren't expecting in your account. The sooner you know, the better. I would also say understand when your statements are supposed to arrive. Do they come every quarter? Do they come every month? Whether it's your bank or your mutual fund? Because if your statement doesn't arrive, that's a red flag, whether... Um, The mutual fund thinks you're lost or a fraudster has changed your address. One of the first things that a fraudster does is turn off paper communications and turn on email communications and email to themselves. So if you start to notice your statements aren't showing up, that's a red flag and I would contact your financial institution. uh, you would also make sure your financial institution has multiple ways to get in touch with you so not just your landline for those of you that still have a landline but your cell phone and an up-to-date email address because the more ways they have to get in touch with you the better off you are whether it's to avoid treatment or if there's a suspected fraud um, shred 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 your financial documents don't throw them in the trash but shred everyone should have a shredder in their house and use it <laughs> um we already talked about um, using public Wi-Fi, don't. Just don't use it to log into any account that you need a password for. Um, never give your personal information to a stranger. Protect your personal information and passwords, that's key. Um, my favorite example of this, I don't know how many of you watch late night TV, but Jimmy Campbell does a bit, a bit where he sends one of his staff out to the street to ask people about their passwords and at first they're very like oh no I can't give you that and then they'll say well what's your dog's name and oh my dog's name is Fred and oh and what year did you go to college oh so your do your password's Fred 1987 you know and then the, yeah. the you know person being interviewed is like oh like it's so easy to be tricked so be aware um and it's it's really that one it's just sort of puts it home for me and then as we yeah. talked about stay up to date with the current scams um the IRS doesn't call you demanding money you know things like that so stay up to date as i said AARP the federal trade commission has has a list of the current scams um, as does with the finra website and lastly monitor your credit history um, that's a dead giveaway if the identity theft has occurred if you have strange things in your credit history or you have credit cards that are open that don't belong to you or you didn't open and I would also add, consider freezing your credit so that new accounts can't be opened and they have to come to you first. Um, but as Tammy said, we'll send those along to you, um, along with some of the other websites that Tammy's already mentioned, to,
1: to share with your, your audience. Excellent. I, I appreciate you both so much for being here. Um, and thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all this great information for our listeners. And uh, is, there, is there anything else? I don't
2: think so. Again, we, we really appreciate the opportunity to, to help educate um, your audience because the, the, you know, the best defense for a lot of these frauds and this treatment is, is an educated investor. So we, we thank you for this opportunity. And we don't want the fraudsters to get away with anything. <laughs>
3: no,
1: definitely not. So this show is great um, for all that information to help people. And I just want to, in closing, just remind you that we were speaking with Tammy Salmon and Joanne Kane from ICI. And ICI is um, at ICI.org. ICI stands for Investment Company Institute. And there's just such a wealth of information out there available. And what I one of the reasons why I love having ICI on Best Ever You, aside from our awesome conversations, our laughter, our company information and all that stuff, is that this is a – To me, and I think everybody can agree that this is a source of information where you can trust. And I think it's really important to communicate that to our audience. You can go on ici.org and trust the information. Um, Do you guys want to just quickly touch on that before we go? Because uh, I, you know, when you're on the internet and you're and so forth, and you're looking for financial guidance or advice or information or whatever, I just think this website and And Institute are just you know golden
2: but you know we we spent a a lot of time and energy making sure that anything that that we say is accurate our reputation and integrity is everything to us we won't publish something unless it's checked and double checked and and triple checked. so so thank you for for commending us for that because it's something that we do take very seriously
1: yeah I think that's just one thing I I could convey over and over again. And I keep trying to do that in my audience and so forth. And it's nice to have the inquiries like what's ICI, you know, people are starting to really reach out and ask me about it. Um, And so I've, I'm really proud to have you guys with us on best ever you. And, and I I love this for our audience and for anybody else listening. So thank you again for being with us. I hope you have happy holidays and a happy new year and, and we'll schedule some more shows shows soon. And thanks again to Stephanie. I appreciate you so much. So thanks everybody for listening. Take care and have a great day. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Best Ever You Show. Want more? Visit us at besteveryou.com. Be your best and keep it real. Confident, successful, caring, and beautiful every day with Best Ever You.